I would like to welcome you to today's podcast with Dr. Alessandra Camini. She taught at SMU for a number of years and was a famous and respected and loved teacher. It was my privilege to be the Dean of the Meadows School of the Arts during this period, and I would now like to introduce her to you and have her tell us a little bit about when did you come to SMU and how long were you actually teaching here? Well, Jean, I'm delighted to be the person being interviewed by you. We've had a number of years together, fun, games, successes. I came to SMU in 1974 because I was mugged and robbed in <laughs> one two-week period. I was teaching at Columbia University in New York then, and that those two experiences left me ready to get out of New York. And my mother, Megan Laird, had founded the Italian department at SMU, and my sister was going to SMU. So what a perfect time to have an invitation come to me from William Jordan, who founded, really, the Art History Department at SMU, and he asked if I would like to come and teach in Dallas. And uh, although I would never have thought of it before, because of the experiences in New York, I said yes. And so that's why I came in the fall of 74, and I never regretted it. That's wonderful. And how long were you here before you retired? I taught until 2005, so from uh, 74 to 2005. And uh, in now that I am retired, it's, what is it, it's almost 15 years now, um, I have found another occupation, uh, but we'll go into that, I bet, a little bit later. Yes, <laughs> and that's a very exciting one. Well, tell me this, you were beloved as a teacher here and students flocked to your classes. What was it about your teaching that was so distinctive and impressive to the student body? I've wondered about that myself, actually. My classes were very large. Uh, I taught in McFarland Auditorium, which seats about 250 people. And I think what brought people to my classes was just the fact that we had so much fun. I so loved the topics that I was laying out before them and embellished with music sometimes, poetry sometimes, that they had to memorize, uh, that we all just had a grand time doing it, learning what I was re-learning with them. So it was a very happy ambience always. And uh, they, my class for them was an hour and a half just on Tuesdays and Wednesday, uh, Thursdays, and they knew that there was going to be a pop test on one of those days, either Tuesday or Thursday. And so they all had to come because usually the pop test was on Thursday. But as the years went by, the pop test became notorious and glorious at the same time because people enjoyed grading their neighbors' pop tests sometimes. Often they were asked to draw a map, say, of Scandinavia, and it would be hysterical where the countries were, Norway, was fixed to the land, whereas Denmark was shown as an island. <laughs> so it was fun to make them aware of maps. And then uh, we would have sound bites now and then. Uh, for instance, when we had the French Revolution, we were studying David and Angle, the two artists. Uh, uh, one of the members of the class was a trumpeter from the Meadows Symphony Orchestra. And he and I had a little arrangement that when I said, now picture this, the crowd is slowly advancing on Marie Antoinette and on the king, and all of a sudden, 
David in the back up in the court auditorium started pa 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 and everybody got into the spirit of it. So I would dip little things like that into it now and then. And um, anytime I showed a map, they were instructed to say, Oh, a map and to applaud <laughs> even if they didn't give a darn about it. And one time I secretly invited President Zumberg to come and sit in on the beginning of class. So nobody knew he was there but me. And so I began with a map and a class, oh, a map, a map. So afterwards, Zumberg said to me, you know, it's amazing to see a class so excited about a map coming on the screen. I said, yes, isn't it? So <laughs> But well, I know your classes were exciting. My son happened to take one of those classes, and he always reported that it was the most fun class he ever took. Oh, really? Yes. Fun? Oh, yeah. Why shouldn't learning be fun? Yes. Yeah. That's, I, I do remember now your son uh, and where he sat. Usually I have a good memory for where different people sit. But, yeah, we had a lot of fun in the class. And what did I teach? Art history at least that's what it said in the catalog. But what I taught, really, if it were 19th century or 20th century, I always called it the cultural content of artistic form. And so that's why the class had a greater reach, because it appealed especially to pre-med students at SMU and to all the uh, members of the orchestra for some reason. So when we examine, let's say, a painter, and had done the descriptive and the analytical parts that that involved. Then we asked ourselves, what else was going on? What were the politics? Uh, were there kings present, queens present, or was this an independent republic somewhere? And what was the music? We often took heed of the music. Sometimes they would come to class and the music of that period would already be playing. And uh, what was the dance life like? and always architecture. You get just a glimpse of that. While we were still on the main topic, we would get these little peripheral hints as to what else was going on. I know <coughs> that your teaching was always informed by your research, and you were such an important scholar. I know uh, Klimt and Sheely were uh, two of the main artists that you did research on, and you published about them, but many others. and. I'm wondering about how your research informed your teaching. I would say joyfully and immediately. Some of the anecdotes I did refrain from giving because we had to move on with the created artwork. But yes, the research would bring in unusual little, not skirmishes, but little dashes around the main subject. So that I would say researching I was always doing. And with the resources we had at that time, as you and I have spoken about, we didn't have the internet. We didn't have cyber immediacy. We had our libraries. We had our wonderful, good, old-fashioned books. And part of art history teaching at that time was not putting together a PowerPoint, which is ex exceedingly easy and creative. We had to get the illustrations, borrow books from the libraries, set up our photo stand, which you know is still upstairs, and uh, do all our own photography, then wait until they were developed, then identify them, and then p find a room for them in a box that made some kind of sense. So it was this way. It was as though I were producing a play. I was in charge of the actors. I was in charge of the costumes, the surroundings, the stage, the music. Uh, each 
time on Tuesdays and Thursdays, it was like a complete production because so many things went into it beyond just a research. Yes, indeed. And I know your knowledge of music always amazed me. In 1987, you published your book, The Changing Image of Beethoven. And that was based on all the research you did without the internet uh, from books and, and other things. And you put together an amazing uh, exposition of composers and uh, music performance and all of that. And I'm sure that came into your classes and your teaching as well because that's one thing, one of the reasons so many musicians came to your classes. Uh, tell me a little more about that. Well, the musicians would gather at my house once the final exam had been given so that they couldn't influence me or influence <laughs> them. And they would come in, as you see, there are a lot of musical instruments out around here, and we would have a jam session. But the only requirement was that they did not play a music, but they knew how to play. <laughs> so we had all kinds of recording sessions and lots of fun after classes were over. But I think that the reason my classes appealed to symphony orchestra players is that, well, I'm a flutist myself, but that uh, art just somehow can't be art unless it also has the music by its side. Yes. The two ages are so harmoniously intertwined. And I can't imagine art being painted and looked at in those earlier periods without music. And so often art is a portrait milieu, so you would have portraits of, of musicians, of composers. So that all intertwined very nicely. And I, I noticed, too, that now, 250 years after Beethoven's birth, uh, that book is being republished in German. Yes, I'm very excited about that. It's a massive undertaking because they have to update the footnotes uh, and all the little tweets that I gave in these massive footnotes. They have to give the most uh, recent sources for mm -hmm. that. So I'm very indebted to this uh, Viennese press who have taken it on. They specialize in music books. I think that Beethoven is a hero for our age just as much as he was during the 19th century. And certainly in the 20th century, he still held meaning that was universal. Yes, that's very true. And now in the murder mysteries that I'm writing, because this is what I found to do in my retirement, uh, I've written one on Klimt, and one on Schiele, and one on Kokoschka, and on Edvard Munch, and on Kete Kolwitz. Uh, but my most recent one has been on the composer Gustav Mahler. And so that has given me a whole new dashboard from which to look at the directions and uh, make wide turns that I might not have before. And now I'm already 25 chapters deep into, just in time for that 250th celebration, deep into the Beethoven boomerang. <laughs> and it's a boomerang because something is going to find, be found that comes, is sent to Vienna by Beethoven's publisher and sent back. <laughs> so it boomerangs back. And this starts a whole series of events. Uh, and in these books on composers, 
I get to describe the music as it happens, just as you were describing a while ago. Yes. And, and that is so exciting to figure out what's going on, what the modalities are, what the tensions are. When we finally break back into a major key or when we just resolve it in a minor. Yes. And uh, one of the <coughs> most exciting things about your books is the insights they give either into the artist, the artist's work, the artist's milieu, all of that. And the same thing happens with now Mahler and Beethoven as you get into using musicians for these mystery books. And they are not only exciting mysteries, but they give you so much more intellectual content that other books don't. They are amazing. Well, thank you. Um, and it's for a small audience, I know. But wait a minute, aren't students an ever-permanent audience? So yes. it may seem as though I'm writing for uh, the intellectual, let's say, or someone who wants not ev a crime a day on every page, but who wants to walk through Vienna with me yes. and stop in the coffee houses yes. and look at where Brahms stood in the middle of the night. Uh, they, it's so much fun to pass this knowledge on. And you and I, we've talked about this before, what the great Italian poet Gabriele D'Annunzio said. He said, Io ho quel che ho donato. I have that which I have given away. And yes. I feel that's what teaching is like. You, you prepare, you give it away, and by golly, you still have it. <laughs> yes. And the same with these new murder mystery books, the Megan Crespi series. I, I dish it out, and yet I still have it. So I can use it again and again. Yes, and I think it's wonderful that the name comes from your mother, Megan. Yes, yes. Yeah. Only you would know that. <laughs> At any rate, let me ask you about this. Uh, you shared this home for so many years with Eleanor Tufts, and both of you were art historians. Both of mm -hmm. you researched and taught. How did you both manage to... Um, do your research and do your teaching and share this space and get it all done. <laughs> well, the results speak for getting it all <laughs> Indeed done. they do. And it is true, but uh, sh she was a daytime person and I was and still am a nocturnal person. <laughs> so we met not at breakfast, <laughs> but at lunch and at dinner. So that was very much to our liking. Uh, Eleanor p played the piano, did you know that? I didn't know no, that, no. Yeah. I didn't either for a number of years, and when I found out she did, uh, we played flute and piano sometimes at night too. But we had different times of the day or evening when we prepared our courses. So it was a wonderful working relationship. And she kept me calm, and I think I was helpful to her in editing the books that she wrote. And she was an exciting presence at SMU, and especially for our art history department, because she was the first person in modern times to write a book on women artists, women artists. Yes. So she brought a lot of fame to our department for doing that. Yes, yes. Both of you did so much for art history at SMU, and uh, over the years uh, you made a, a very great contribution to that department. It was, it was quite amazing. But it's, it's interesting how you were able to manage both of you together <laughs> in this space, uh, one being working in the daytime and one at nighttime, but that, that works. It did. <laughs> Her desk was right here. <laughs> yeah, and I would, I would be fixing dinner in the kitchen, and I could look through the kitchen windows and see her sitting at her desk. So 
She did the cleanup. I did the cooking. <laughs> I would already be upstairs working on my slides. Uh, and we traveled together, of course, every summer. We traveled around our respective um, spots where our specialties were. And that was fun, too, because one would photograph and the other would write down the the data until we finally realized all you have to do is photograph the data <laughs> on the wall plaque instead of taking the time to write it down. Well, you know, another thing that, and of course this is so much a part of your uh, mystery series, all of your travels over the years mm. have given you great insights into so many different cities around the world. And these locations where your books take place have very authentic descriptions Thank you. of all of the places where they happen. <laughs> and that is very unusual. Well, I'm very happy to hear that <coughs> because it's really fun to describe these places. And they are accurate. Yes. They, they certainly uh, portray what, uh, I mean, the person can read your books and have real insights into the places where they're taking place. Well, I've been told by a couple of readers that they, they have the book in one hand and their laptop in the other because they love to check the authenticity <laughs> and think, oh, okay, I'm going to stay at that hotel when I go to Vienna next time. Yeah, mm. So that's kind of fun to know. Yes, that's all very true. Tell me a little more about, uh, I mean, you taught all of this time at SMU. Did you teach anything else besides the art history class? I taught a class which I called Modern Myth Making. And it was inspired by having done the book on Beethoven, Modern Mythmaking of Him. But I would give, these were seminars. I did actually teach smaller classes. And this was a very popular seminar because they got to choose their own topic. Who in modern day culture was a myth and how did they get to be? Mm -hmm. So Lady Gaga was always a choice, for example. Oh, goodness. But uh, a building, they could choose a building as a m modern myth entity to look at its history and how it came to be appreciated or detested. It would be like someone now choosing to do Notre Dame yes. because of what it meant yeah. and means. So that was a seminar I loved giving, modern myth-making. And I gave a seminar on Edvard Munch, the Norwegian artist. And I think mine was the first seminar ever to be given in America on Munch. And again, I got to use my experiences of driving all over Scandinavia um, I, I love the difference in the three languages in Scandinavia, the Norwegian and the Danish and the Swedish. And in my murder mystery on Munch, I end it by saying, uh, Megan says, farewell Scandinavia till next time. And first she says it in Swedish and it goes, farewell Scandinavia till next gang. And then the Norwegian who is not as Italian sounding as a Swede says, Scandinavia till next gang. And then the Dane, who always murmurs, Danes murmur, said, Scandinavia till next gang. So that's a fun way to end a murder mystery by reminding us of which countries we've been in, just hearing them say that. That's wonderful, yes. Uh, well, if, when you love languages, mm -hmm. you love to pull them in and use them as well. Yes, and all of that goes into your books, and it's it's wonderful that you're continuing to do this and that you have found this career after your research and teaching in art history. I never would have thought of it, mm -hmm. but I'd be doing that. Well, how did it begin? 
<laughs> well, I was on a very long plane flight from New York to San Francisco, and I knew I wanted to read something. And the only thing I ever read in Murder Mysteries was Agatha Christie. Yes. Or more recently, Dan Brown. That was it. Yes. So I grabbed a Penguin pocketbook and put it on the plane with me and opened it up. And it wasn't Agatha Christie, but usually anything that Penguin publishes is good. Well, I'm very sorry to tell you this, but it was a British murder mystery. And there were so many hedges and swamps and little garden paths and um, uh, color lilies. I just closed a book finally and said, I guess I'm going to have to write a book myself, a murder <laughs> mystery myself. And Charlotte, who was taking this plane flight with me, said, do it. And so at her house in Santa Fe, I started that first mystery on Klimt. And I thought, well, now let's see. In a murder mystery, you're supposed to have sex. So I invented some sex and all these things. And I don't do it anymore. I only did it in the first two because I thought, this kind of lowers the level of what I'm writing about. I'm writing about culture, not about. So, but for the first two books, I did that. And I didn't know I was going to write another one. I had written my murder mystery book. But my publisher called it the first in the Megan Crespi series. <laughs> so he gave me the idea of continuing to. And now I'm on my eighth one. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> but I was very lucky to have a dean, incidentally. I won't mention him by name. But to have a dean who saw to it that those of us who had special gifts had the time to utilize those gifts and who saw to it that we got sabbaticals and who took care of us. And so this dean, whom I cannot mention by name because I'm looking straight at him, <laughs> Uh, was a very big part of my life at SMU. Well, that's wonderful. Well, we certainly had uh, a lot of fun uh, doing all these things. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, um, what else can you share about uh, your life at SMU that you still remember and that's important to you? I think that the excitement of knowing that the art history department was not over in Dedman College, but that it was with the other arts. I think that's what drew me to SMU after Bill mm -hmm. Jordan's lovely invitation. Because I always felt that art history and making art go together. Yes. And not only that, there was music, theater, and uh, that it just seemed to me so right that art history didn't have to be over in those other sedate arts, but could be having fun, making noise outdoors, walking around, hearing your echo in the long halls of the meadow school, and seeing kids from dance. Yes. Uh, so being, to, being with artists and people interested in the arts, including music history, of course, was well, stimulating. And at we all also levels. had the advantage of having a fabulous museum as a part of the school, and it now has one of the finest collections of Spanish art anywhere outside of the Prado. And it's uh, seeing that museum and how it's developed and what's happened has, has been a great joy to me because it was just really getting started. I know Bill Jordan really was responsible for founding that and working with Al Meadows to get it started. Even though Al Meadows bought a lot of fakes, it didn't stop him. No, he started he, all over he again. He started all over yeah. and he built not only his foundation, but he built a wonderful museum, and that is one of the hallmarks of the Meadow School, where you have great art paintings by the great masters that they can go and see right here at the university. It's extraordinary. Yes. Very few colleges 
Very mm -hmm. few universities mm -hmm. have that kind of immediacy of mm -hmm. checking out the art next door. And we're, we're fortunate that people like Bob Hope and Greg Garson gave theaters where we can perform the great works of theater. Yes, uh, yes. No, we, SMU has been very fortunate, b both with its donors and patrons and with the people who've taught and worked with us over the years. I couldn't agree more. Mm -hmm. Always has been stimulating. Mm -hmm. After this wonderful conversation, I want to thank you, Sandra, for making your commitment to SMU starting in 1974 and for all you've meant to this university over all the years you researched and taught here. You've been an exemplary scholar and teacher. You've brought so much to students over so many generations. And all of this has contributed to bringing this university to a level of being one of the best in the United States. And it's brought the Meadows School in all of its areas to a much higher level of distinction because you are one of those who understands the interaction of all of the arts, of, of their importance to one another. You bring all of that into your teaching and into your research. And it's been a joy for me to have been your dean for 15 years and also to have watched what you've done since I retired and you retired and to see that this is now a great school and to see how the art history department has continued to develop. It now offers the PhD. It now is becoming one of the great schools of the country and both you and Eleanor Tufts and all the others contributed so much to make that happen. And I want to just again say to you, thank you for all you did to make this happen. That is very humbling, although I'm usually so excited by praise, but <laughs> this time I'm humbled and I appreciate and I love you. Oh, thank you so much.